That's why I'm kind of all right. Isn't that good? Praise God. Woo! Leslie's coming up to read scripture for you, and uh, she's coming up. I wanted to give you some context of what she's going to read, and, and I need to put you in context with how this stands in terms of a much longer story, because it is our story. It is the story of God's salvation work as we find it in Genesis and in Exodus, and as we're going through this next month, as we're talking about uh, how that Exodus journey reflects on our journey of faith, we begin today. I want you to know Joseph. Remember Joseph from the Bible? Multicolored coat, dysfunctional family. Can you relate? Okay. His brothers throw him down a well. He gets sold off into slavery. Uh, he rises up through the ranks. I'm making the story short. He becomes honored by the Egyptian prince. He becomes a prince of Egypt. And he and his people, the chosen people of God, have the opportunity now to reside in Egypt, protected and safe and contributing parts of the culture, well-embraced, well-loved. 400 years later, I want you to catch this, 400 years later, I want you to think about this, 400 years ago, what was the date? Do the math, 400 years ago, what was the date from here? 1619, right? Have things changed from 1619 till today? Yes. So you can imagine things have changed a lot in Egypt. In fact, so much so that the story of Joseph and his importance to Egypt has been forgotten. And now the leaders in power are looking to blame somebody for all the things that are broken in the country. And they see those Israelites. And the Israelites move to being enslaved and abused. You know the story? You with me so far? And God raises up a deliverer whose name is Moses, that's right. Moses rises up, long story made short, and he gets called by God to challenge Pharaoh to set God's people free. He goes to do that, and God gives him a little extra help, the ten plagues. Remember the story about the ten plagues? You saw the movie. <laughs> right? And all the plagues are horrible and terrible, but not even the orchid man can get rid of all of those locusts and the frogs and all that stuff. And so finally, the last plague, which is no laughing matter because it is the visitation of death. And God says to the people of Israel, put on your doorpost the sign of the blood, and the angel will pass over you and you'll be protected. Remember this? Horrible story, and the... And the uh, uh, Pharaoh's heart, which was hardened, is now broken at all this pain, and he chooses to let the people go. But they got to go quick. So Moses says, let's move. We don't have time to go to Kroger and load up the car, okay? We're moving fast. You don't have time to let your bread rise. I want unleavened bread. That's all you got time for. Grab your stuff. We're going. And because of that, in that moment of deliverance, they became to understand this was not just a time in history, but a story of their history and of their truth. And so later, they decided this moment needed to be remembered through all generations. Listen to Leslie now as she reads to you from Exodus about what they're called to do to remember that night. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. 
Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your house. For whosoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventeenth day, the seventh, sorry, day shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a solemn assembly, and on the seventh day a solemn assembly. No work shall be done on those days. Only what everyone must eat, that alone may be prepared by you. You shall observe the festival of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your companies out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout your generations as a perpetual ordinance. In the first month, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day, you shall eat unleavened bread. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your house. For whosoever eats what is leaven shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether an alien or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leaven in all your settlements. You shall eat unleavened bread. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Leslie. Would you join with me in prayer? Gracious, loving, and eternal God, we ask you to be that presence so unmistakable with us now. Let deliverance and hope become not only that which we desire, but that which we experience. Not through my words, but through your holy word. And not by simply our desires, but by what you have already prepared to put into us and around us. Let this time be holy. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. There is not a reason to be a Christian in this world unless your faith makes a difference in the next generation. I want to say that one more time. There is not a reason to be a Christian in this world unless your faith makes a difference in the next generation. There is a common understanding that Christianity exists so that our lives can be better. And this is a distortion of the truth and a watered-down version of what Jesus came to do. Now, I'm not saying that knowing Jesus Christ and being in a relationship with him of salvation doesn't make your life better. It does. At least it does for me, and I hope it does for you. But if that's what we think the whole deal is, then we have missed the understanding of what Jesus Christ came to do. And if we think our primary focus is for us to have a better life with Jesus, then we are a misguided church lost on a mission for which Jesus never sent us. Jesus did not come primarily to make my life an easier life. The focus of faith is that as we experience the fullness and richness of what it is to be in a relationship with the living God, whom we know through Jesus Christ, that we then turn our attention, our energies, our hopes, our dreams, our prayers, and all of our efforts so that the next generation 
experiences the same and is prepared to pass it on. Jesus came not to make us great Christians. Jesus came to make the kingdom of God real in the world, which is much larger than our individual lives. And unless our faith is making a difference in the lives of others around us and in the generations to come, then we need to question whether our faith is fulfilling what Christ intends. That has always been true of how this God works. It predates even the time of Jesus Christ. It goes all the way back to the time of the Exodus. And in that ancient story, we see how God came to deliver God's people. But not simply that they might be saved in that moment. Rather, that they would continue to live their life of faith, generation to generation to generation. In fact, when they celebrate the Seder meal, the meal which in part is described by the words that Leslie just wrote to you, read to you, the point is to be able to celebrate the truth of their faith so that the children can embrace it, know it, understand it, grow up in it, understand what it causes of them, what it asks of them, and be prepared to live it out for the future. In the words of the Seder, as they share those words, they not only reflect about how God is a God of deliverance and how God provided them plenty in their time of need, but they are also called to reflect on how they now, as God's people, are called to share and take care of those who have need around them. That is an annual remembrance at the Seder. Participating in that meal means connecting our lives and this generation to something larger than themselves. And it's been repeated over and over again annually across the world in different cultures so that thousands of generations can continue to have a power and understanding that the Seder table is for them, but it is bigger than them. The story of the Exodus remains a powerful source of the identity and motivation for the descendants of the Israelites to this day. When they celebrate the Passover every year, they retell the story of how they were in bondage and God delivered them so that the children of the Seder table can know our God is invested in us and will deliver us in our time of need and in that deliverance we have accountability and responsibility as God's chosen people. So how does that ancient ritual have relevance for our faith today as Christians here in Clarkston? Let me remind you of what I said to begin with. There's not a reason to be a Christian in this world unless your faith is making a difference in the generation to come. There's a lot of conversation out in the world, and there's even a lot of study out in the world about how Christianity has become irrelevant to so many, how the witness of the church and of Jesus Christ to the world no longer matters, resonates with people who are yearning simply to become spiritual or, quite frankly, are simply turned off towards any kind of organized faith or religion. But I want to proclaim this to you. Christianity is not irrelevant. Christians who forget who they are and what they are called to do often give to the world an irrelevant version of the faith. Christians who forget who we are and what we're called to do begin to construct around us beliefs, practices, and behaviors 
that primarily exist to make us comfortable, make us feel secure, make us feel safe, and that's why the world says, I don't care about that. Those aren't my issues. We in the church spend so much time thinking about what we want, we don't consider what God might want through us for others in the world. That's what's irrelevant. But the proclamation of Jesus Christ is not. Over the years, I have spent too many times involved in conversations in a variety of churches and watched it across our globe as Christians fought about things for which the world sits around going, what are you talking about? I mean, we're going to paint the sanctuary tomorrow. That's not true. We're going to paint this part of the sanctuary tomorrow. We're not painting the whole thing. And what if it were purple? There'd be seven committee meetings right away to talk about what's going on with this church. And at the end of the day, who cares? Not the people outside of the church. Not the families that are broken and hurting and trying to figure out how to find peace and joy and hope for their children. Not the families around us who can't find enough food unless they come to the food bank. Uh, not the people out in the world who are trying to figure out how to find joy in their life and can't find it. They could care less how, what color your walls are. I'm not saying those issues are not important. They matter. But do they really matter in terms of offering a relevant faith to the world, a faith that we can hand down to the generation? Is it our critical role as a denomination or as a church we teach our kids how to do a meeting so a committee can arrive at a decision about paint color? Or is it more important we help them understand that God is a living God and is with them? And they will know that no matter what room they are in, no what color it might be, or what challenges they may face in their life. That's why we celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion. It is our meal that God has given to us through Jesus Christ so that we can come together like our Jewish brothers and sisters and be reminded of our truth and live it out again. And that's interesting, in the life of the church, we have often fought about how to even do that. Do you, do you dip in the cup or should you drink from the cup? Should you kneel or should you stand? Should you pass it out? Should you make people come forward? What kind of bread should you use? Should it be wine? Should it be grape juice? Sound familiar? Who's allowed to come to the table? Who should be kept away? What training should you get before you come to receive? Should children be allowed? All these are questions that I have dealt with in my life in the church, either as a pastor or as a layperson. It's interesting how we can do that. The other question, of course, how often should you take it? Well, now when I came into ministry 40 years ago, it said in the Book of Worship of the United Methodist Church, you must take communion once every four, or four times a year, once every quarter. You had to. And they put it in there because there are a lot of churches who weren't taking it that often. And then a revolution started, liturgical revolution, you know, in the speed of the church. 40 years later, we at least do it once a month. And we now know that attendance on communion Sundays is larger than on other Sundays on average, which is different 
than when I used to be a pastor at Springville 40 years ago, and we hid when we were going to do communion. We wouldn't announce it ahead of time. We would surprise it on people, sort of sneak up on them. That's true. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, his brother Charles, preached a sermon and taught about taking constant communion. They took communion as often as they could. They took communion often because they wanted to be reminded of their truth. They wanted to receive the truth. They wanted to live the truth. And Wesley, in one of his famous sermons, takes on several of the arguments as why not to take communion more often. One of those I thought is interesting is the question, well, if you do it too often, it'll lose its meaning. You don't want, you don't want, you know, it's got to be special, so don't do it too often. Well, I want to talk about that just for a quick second. You know that we have two daughters, that you know that one lives in North Carolina, one lives in Illinois, and every time I talk to our daughters, Lord does the same thing. When we talk to our daughters at the end of the conversation, they know what's coming. Every phone call, every time, for the rest of my life, they're going to hear, I love you. They're going to hear it every time. They have not yet told me that they're bored. They're going to be reminded every time I have a chance to tell them that I love them. Laura will remind them she loves them because that's what we want them to remember, whatever else the conversation might have been about. Hint, my wife expects some regularity on that issue as well. And if you are in a marriage or have a significant relationship, I would consider that you do wise to tell as often as possible. Not so you won't get in trouble, but so that you will never, never not in that relationship celebrate what's most important. All the things in my life that I'm required to do that are better for me have a cumulative effect. Like telling the people you love, you love them. Don't do it once a year. Do it as often as you can. Like healthy eating. I had a salad yesterday. I'm good to go, I think, for at least three months. I'm good. <laughs> but my doctor seems to think if I keep eating on a regular basis something other than what I've been eating, it might be good for me. Exercise. I move the remote to the other side of the couch. I figure. But they now tell me it doesn't matter how hard I work out for that period of time when I work out once every six weeks, but rather that I work out regularly. Do you understand what I'm saying, right? Simply put, don't breathe too often. It'll lose its significance to you. The things that matter most in life, the things that really bring us health, are those things that we do frequently that change us and remind us of who we are. Because when I come to communion, I, like my Jewish brothers and sisters, are reminded of whose I am and who is with me and who I am called to be. When we take communion, we do so so that we might come to this table and it does not matter if you dip. It does not matter if you kneel. It does not matter if you stand. It does not matter if you sing during the receiving of it. What matters is, is that you take the bread and you remember this is the body of Jesus Christ broken. 
This is the cup of salvation. And is it wine or is it grape juice? Does it really matter? It is the gift of God that as you eat and drink, you remember that you are not alone, that whatever mess your life has been or whatever's going on in the world, God is a God of deliverance. And in the midst of what we deal with, we are never alone, even if we are in bondage and all is broken, and God will remain faithful. And I need that reminder, my goodness, at least once a month. And we want our children to remember that, which is why for me there's never been a question as to whether children should take communion. And the argument that I had once in a church where they said, well, they don't know what they're doing. Really? Children can't immediately figure out they're in a place where they're loved. People can't figure out immediately that they're in a place where they get to do what the big people are doing and they're treated with respect and honored to do that. Kids can't hear when they're handed the bread or drink from the cup to say, you know, this is the love of Jesus Christ for you. They can't remember that. You remember that. And all your life you're going to know that. Because we taught it to you when you were. We want our children to know it and experience it so that one day, one day maybe one or two of them might be the one standing up front lifting and saying the words. And the others will be coming to eat and drink and remember. That's why for me, the sacrament of Holy Communion when we share it together has so many powerful moments. I've been here long enough. I know a lot of your stories. I don't know all of them. But I know what some of you are bringing to the table on any given Sunday. And if some of you are carrying a pretty heavy load, you need to drop in the foot of Jesus. And some of you are coming ready to dance and celebrate because God has been really blessing you. And whatever it is, there's an encounter that happens and you're not alone when that occurs. That's a holy moment. But as wonderful as it is when I see you guys come forward, when we have Sunday school in the regular time of the year, I love it when after all you get done, the kids come rushing down the aisle. Is that not amazing to watch them receive this sacrament and have, a, was, I don't know, sometime in this past winter, one of them got smart enough and went down every station. <laughs> that child's going to be a theologian. <laughs> How much grace is too much grace? How much bread is too much bread if it's the body of Christ? How much salvation shouldn't you be drinking from if you get a chance? If you start it then, maybe you'll do it the rest of your life. And when you get into situations the rest of your life where you will need deliverance, you'll need faith, you'll need to know that God will not abandon you, you will hold the bread, you will drink the cup, and you'll know. That's why this matters. It's not only for what happens now. It's for how you will live it out. So the next generation will learn how to do it. You know, this is the dead time of the year. It's summer. The church isn't doing anything. All's quiet. <laughs> Except 
You just had 170 kids chased around by 100 volunteers here two weeks ago. We called it Vacation Bible School. So the kids will learn that this is a safe place where God loves them. And then you followed up by sending almost 100 people into Oakland County and different places to go serve in mission to help benefit the lives of others because you thought that's what Jesus called you to do. Oh, and then we've got fuel mission going on where our junior high kids are going out in the community doing mission work on day projects. Oh, yes, and then a week and a half, we're going to send our senior highs to Brooklyn, New York. You're going to hear more about that in a second. Why are we doing all that? Generation to generation. So somewhere along the way, when they're sweating in New York, they will remember that even there, they are part of the family that took the bread, dipped into the cup, and they cannot get away from that love and grace. We're going to remember our truth right now. And we're going to invite all of you to take it. I find this interesting. I'll end with this. You read the scriptures close, you'll realize when they first did the Seder, they said only, only the Jews and their servants could take it. Foreigners are not allowed. That's not true anymore. How many of you have taken a Seder, participated in a Seder in your life? Anybody? Yeah, a number of you. Because a good part of Judaism now understands, yeah, it's Jewish. But the Seder is bigger than that. And some of us have been welcomed in, even us old Gentiles. Because you can't stop God's love. In this meal, everybody's welcome. Let's remember our truth and come forward.